Hello and welcome to the very last episode of Season 1 of the Born Him Podcast. Thank you all as ever for joining us and coming with us on this journey so far. I wanted today to introduce somebody who holds a very personal place in my heart, Dominie Hooper. Dominie is someone that I credit with saving my own family in that when my wife struggled with postnatal depression, she was the person that got her back on track and helped her find her way back to health. And what I wanted to do with all of you today was share her amazing journey and she is the most giving and amazing person when it comes to helping people manage their family life and their emotions and feelings that come out of becoming a parent. So she is an art psychotherapist, a behavioural therapist who works in schools, works with postnatal mothers, works with families and parents, helping them manage their journey into parenthood and family life. And she's been doing this for over 20 years. So today I wanted to explore her journey, herself, and since she became a mum, and also thinking about what her, how things have changed in the last 20 years. So without further ado, I will leave you to Domini and I having the last chat of the season. Enjoy. Okay, so welcome to today's Born Human podcast. Today I'm joined by somebody who's very special to me in many ways, um, Dominie Hooper. Hello, Dominie. How Hello. are you? Hi. Thank you for coming on. Dominie is someone who I credit with saving my family, um, and largely because uh, when my wife suffered with postnatal depression, she was someone that helped her recover and found her way through that, and that made a huge difference to our lives and our kids. So I'm very grateful for that. So I'm going to publicly declare a thank you to you first. Wow, what an introduction. Well, <laughs> well deserved and well earned. Um, Dominique is also, fortunately for me, part now uh, part of Born Human, which is uh, our business that we are working with parents and trying to change their outcomes within the workplace and trying to improve that. And it's uh, a pleasure to have her on board because her experience is kind of invaluable. But what I wanted to do today was talk to Dominique about her experience because she's got a lot of experience in this in supporting parents and she also has three children, which is relevant to the whole equation. Um, and so, yeah, we are here just having a very relaxed conversation about kind of how her work evolved and how she got there and how her family is. So thank you for coming on, Dominique. It's really lovely to have you. Um, Tell me a little bit about your family. How did that sort of start? How old are your children and when when did that sort of begin for you? When did that journey begin? Um, well, I I was first, I've actually had a baby in each decade. I had a baby in the 90s, a baby in the noughties, and then a baby in yeah, 2011. That's just showing so, off now. Yeah, so I've tried <laughs> I've tried to cover all all the decades. So, um yeah, so I've got uh, two older girls who are now 23 and 20. Yeah. And then uh, I got divorced and then recently remarried and I have an 11-year-old son. Yeah. So that's why there's a big, a big. I, I feel I've been parenting for, for 25 years, it feels time. like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, a long time. Consistent. Yeah. Still yeah. doing the school run. Yeah, yeah still, still doing still the school run. Still 20 years of school run. Yeah. Very well represented in yeah. Bath schools, presumably. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, right. so how old your oldest is? So my eldest is 23. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think it's interesting talking about this kind of thing because when you said, you know, what, what got me into this kind of work in the first place, yeah. I think I was interested in working, well, just the therapeutic angle of, of stuff when I was pregnant. 
Um, yeah. It came way before my daughter was even born. Yeah. I hated being pregnant. Yeah. I didn't enjoy it. And I, I think I was, what, about uh, 27 when I first got pregnant. Yeah. And I was really excited. I thought it was wonderful. You know, you're full of all the expectation and excitement. Yeah. And then being pregnant, I found really unpleasant. And I kept thinking... Why don't people tell you this? Why don't people tell you that it's horrible? It's yeah. uncomfortable. It's it's scary. It's freaky. I'm I'm going to have to change my life. I'm going to, you know, all the way through that nine months, everybody was sort of very positive. And I just spent the whole time thinking, this is rubbish. When yeah. is it going to end? And I, at the time, and this is the late 90s, I went to uh, Waterstones. And I remember looking at the shelves in Waterstones and thinking, there must be books on how you feel being pregnant, not not what's happening to the baby, not yeah. what's happening to my body, not what I should be eating or not, not drinking and or... not measuring the bump and looking at pictures and diagrams. I don't want that. Yeah. I want something that tells me why I'm feeling the way I am, yeah. why I'm not enjoying it, why the sort of psychological impact of being pregnant seems to me bigger than the physical. Yeah. And I couldn't find anything. Yeah. There was nothing. And I, I went online and I ended up ordering a, a few therapy books, actually, that were about pregnancy and reading them and just thinking, oh, this is dry. This is, you know, this is a sort of um, academic book about it. Yeah. And there was nothing really at that point that could make sense of how I was feeling yeah. in pregnancy. And then I would say after giving birth, it was even harder to find stuff that sort of connected with how I was feeling yeah. as a mother. Um, again, all about the physical, yeah. endlessly about the physical um, stuff. Yeah. It's like this, I'd, whether you feel the same. I've never actually carried a baby, so I can't, <laughs> I can't actually... You're very lucky. I try and, I try and <laughs> I sort of understand it. it, but there's no way that any man on earth could really understand what it feels like. But um, certainly, even being a parent, there's this sort of sense of utopia that you feel like, even in this day and age, that you feel like you should feel, as, as honest as people are these days yeah. about their birth stories and parenting stories and pregnancy stories and the medical situations they go through the psychological situations there's still this sense of social taboo of this isn't what it was penned as this yeah, isn't what i was told what I was it was going to be yeah. and so you know and i guess there is also a sense of like when you have children you do feel blessed to have them you feel very grateful for the opportunity to raise a family there's plenty of people who can't and so there, there is that sense of oh it's quite ungrateful if I'm feeling a certain way but actually you know that creates this sort of taboo that you can't talk about it so you don't bring it up with people and I think often with pregnancy and children there's so many subjects like that that are like oh like sleep deprivation it's like yeah the, the kids are doing fine they're all sleeping through the night I'd love to know the reality of what that is for the majority of parents it's not People always put a glossy cover on it, you know, and kind of make it a certain way. Did you did you find anything? So you didn't find anything at all in terms of looking after your sort of mental well-being and like how it felt for you psychologically? No, not really. I mean, not until I think there's a lot more now, definitely yeah. now. Um, so over the last 20 years, I think people are now much more aware of the impact that pregnancy has and and obviously the the, the postnatal period as well 
and people are, you know, there are more books about it. There's more support. There's more acknowledgement. But I think definitely when I was looking at that point, either I was looking in completely the wrong place or there just wasn't that sort of... Um, it wasn't something you could explore. Particularly. Yeah. You're right. It was very much, well, isn't it wonderful you're having a baby? How fantastic. Let's look at, you know, even doing NCT stuff. And I, um, for quite a while, for about five years, I was very involved with um, the local NCT. Yeah. And again, there was nothing that nobody was talking about the psychological side of it. Yeah. Everybody was talking about, you know... Um, how to give birth, what intervention, what all the drugs are about. Then afterwards, it was all about, um, you know, changing nappies, feeding, weaning, being environmentally friendly with your nappies and eco, whatever. It was all about <laughs> Terry that. Towling. Yeah, all that, and that stuff. that evolved presumably through the decades. Yeah. yeah. And, and only now, I think, you know, probably in the last 10 to 15 years has it really um, come up. And, and certainly with the groups I run, I used to struggle to get referrals in the beginning yeah. because it wasn't something people were really talking about. Whereas now yeah. I'm inundated every group that I run. I've got more referrals than I can take. Yeah. Um, and it's it's much more open. And um, that's not a coincidence, right? I mean, it, the, the sad thing is that presumably there were many women in 20, 30 years ago who were in that situation and just suffering mm-hmm. in silence, right? And Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so, definitely. Um, I certainly remember in my... Um, NCT group with my first daughter I remember sitting there you know holding his newborn going god this is awful yeah oh my god this is you know I haven't slept I'm uncomfortable my you know my boobs are sore everything hurts I'm sort of I feel a wreck all that kind of thing and everyone just smiling at me and sort of not joining in with that conversation and I used to go away thinking am I the only one who's noticed what's happened you know I kind of almost like I actually find myself thinking, are these women really thick? Yeah. They just haven't spotted it. You know, it's like, or what was their life like before yeah. that this hasn't completely blown a hole in their, um, yeah, yeah. in their lives? Like, you know, was their life so bad before that they haven't noticed? Because yeah. I, I found it um, just such a shock. It was like a bombshell going off. Yeah. Um, and I think my, my husband at the time felt exactly the same way. Yeah. And we both sort of sit there going, this isn't what we thought it would be. Yeah. This isn't easy. This is actually pretty horrendous. Um, yeah. In the early days, you know, it gets better. But certainly in those early days. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, um, so when you broached it with your NCT lot, did they say much about it? Or was it all kind of like, oh, we're not just getting any of that kind of thing? Well, I, I do remember one one mother um, stopped inviting me to things. Um, like she'd organise an NCT thing and then and I would be missed off the list. And, right. and I think she struggled. I think she was struggling and she struggled with the fact that I was voicing it. Right. Um, and I think she just perhaps avoided me because I would bring up things and talk about things that she didn't want to talk about yeah well that was my interpretation she might, she might have just not liked me let's not include but, yeah. her but um but it was yeah I think um a couple of the other mums did say that they struggled yeah. um but again it was quite a taboo um yeah. it was and and, uh, and I remember a few mums um a couple of mums talking to their health visitors and I would have said, yes, these mums were depressed and yeah. struggling with postnatal depression. Um, but nobody was referred anywhere. Nobody got that support. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, well, this must be how it is then. Yeah, yeah. So whereas now I think, um, again, it's being picked up on more. There's more services. I think the problem before was there was no one to 
refer anyone to it. You yeah. know, there weren't there weren't there weren't sort of specialist groups. There wasn't the perinatal support that there is now. Yeah. Um, so I think it was difficult. You either had to be at a real extreme end. Yeah. Or you just had to cope. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, at the far end of um, depression and puerperal psychosis and stuff. Yes, there's lots of stuff there. Yeah. But if you're just having a rubbish time and not enjoying it. Yeah. And low level anxiety and depression. You just get on it was with just it. like get yeah, on with life get kind on with of it, thing yeah. yeah and i think that's it isn't it is that i suppose it does take the courage to kind of it takes a few courageous voices to start really making that noise in a way where somebody is able to sit up and listen and say we can't ignore this anymore mm. and actually like thinking about the knock-on kind of thing of like so it starts out feeling like that but then mental illness kind of develops what we know now about mm. mental illness is that you know, it starts with a seed and then it grows kind of thing. And once yeah. it gets too big, then it becomes really difficult to kind of... So then you start having to get into, you know, serious kind of clinical care, whereas mm. actually there's a lot of holes in the middle of that or gaps in the middle of that yeah. where things can be done. And you, if we're... As long as we're honest about it and as long as we're open about kind of what people are going through, then we're able to kind of ask for help, I suppose, and that yeah. help is, is now there. And as you yeah. say, it's fortunate that that is there these days and it is getting better by the day. I think it is a, you know, we live in a very fortunate, certainly my kids being younger and, you know, I feel very lucky that mental health is a, a much more open conversation these days yeah. than it ever was. Well, How I, was yeah. Go on, well, no, I was, I was thinking that's probably why I got into that work in the first place. I was, I was looking for other people who mm. wanted to have that conversation um, I sort of thought I can't be the only person yeah. who's thinking this. I want to find some other people that I can feed off really and, and sort of, you know, grapple with some of these thoughts and ideas and all that that I'm having. Yeah, yeah. Surely there are other people out there, which is, you know, when I was I was um, chairing the NCT at the time yeah. and there wasn't anything postnatally um, to explore those issues yeah so um with a couple of friends i set up a, a postnatal drop-in where we'd, we'd have talks and we'd have it on a particular theme and and we'd look at the issues and stuff and and that was almost like the beginning of the postnatal groups that i now run yeah because it was just testing the waters to see if there were other women out there who wanted to gather together yeah. and have that kind of conversation yeah. and you know no surprise there were <laughs> there were quite a few women who were don't of, put a label on it but come yeah, in the door come, and let's, exactly let's we're just... not going to call it depression we're not going to call it you know postnatal depression or anything like that we're just going to say i mean i remember i used to um we used to advertise the, the sort of um program and there was one on on partners um and it was to do with the sort of support structure that you have at home how your partner's reacting how your partner's coping how you and your partner's relationship changes yeah and I just used to call it why I want to stab my husband. <laughs> and that was and that drew people in because I think a lot of women looked at him and goes, Oh God, I loved I my husband before. That, yeah. yeah. I loved my husband before I had a baby. Now I just want to kill him, yeah. you know. And it was that sort of approach. You did this to me. Yeah. This is the worst was, thing ever. Yeah. yeah. So um and that and that yeah, that sort of took off and we suddenly realised there were people out there who wanted to yeah. talk about the sort of less talked about issues and yeah. then out of that came came the therapy groups yeah yeah you saying that made me an interesting funny story but when um my wife was pregnant with uh with wilbur there's a book uh called pregnancy for men, for men and i forget the author i can't remember his name but somebody recommended it to me and said you should read this it's a really easy read but it helps you kind of follow the hormones and the things that your partner's going through during each stage so it does it month by month I was like that sounds interesting because you know generally at that point Lucy had been really sort of quite chilled about it all, mm. and it hadn't been 
And um, and she was, in fairness, without sort of taking any further, she was very relaxed generally mm. through pregnancy. I can't remember which month it was. It was about month four or five. And I'd read it. like the, I'd read this thing in bed like over the couple of nights before. And what they do is they kind of explain what's going on for you. And then they also kind of give you uh, stories from other dads. So, which was really interesting because you're kind of getting a real life experience. And this one dad said... Um, he was just sitting there with his wife one day and uh, she's four or five months pregnant and she just turned to him sitting on the sofa and said, I've got this overwhelming urge to just punch you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, uh, and he was like, okay, yeah. um, I still love you. Uh, like, sort of, yeah, this, <laughs> she didn't punch him in the face from what I can gather from the book. I don't know whether there was any more to it. But anyway, so I'd read this story and I was yeah. like, oh, that was funny, funny thing. Um, it wasn't exactly the same for me, but we were driving the following day or a, a few days later, we were driving out for lunch at um, Lucy's parents. And uh, as we literally got out of our road, we were driving up the road and uh, <laughs> Lucy said, I really don't want to go for this lunch. All I want to do is throw all the food and all the plates off the table <laughs> and just sort of really expressively. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, do you know what? I understand this because I read about this yeah. last night. And apparently you'll forget about it in a week and it'll yeah. be all right kind of thing. And it was like a momentary thing, right? Yeah. But um, not suggesting, you know, there was no, you know, that was as funny as it got for us. But it was this sort of uh, it, knowledge is power and information yeah. is relevant and had I not have read that book at that moment in time, that probably would have really frightened me. Mm. And don't get me wrong, it was it was a bit sort of, it was totally out of character, mm. and that's what pregnancy can do to mm-hmm. you, um, as I understand it, having never been through it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it gave me comfort and it gave me solace to kind of be able to say, okay, well, there's other guys that are going through a similar thing and there is an end to it. And I guess to some extent there is like a this is to be expected kind yeah. of thing. Well, that one of the things, one of the things that um, mums always say in their feedback about the postnatal group is, it normalises everything. Yeah, you know, yes, you can go through these really strong feelings and these experiences, and a lot of women go through a lot of trauma, but the feelings afterwards can be normalised as to well, you know, when you look at what you've been through, yeah, and when you look at what others around you are going through, and when you look at maybe the support or the lack of support or the lack of care or the gaps in provision or whatever, it makes sense of your feelings. Um, So it's not you losing the plot and you've, you know, you can't cope, you've lost the plot, you've gone mad. It's not that at all. It's actually, well, when you look at everything that converged at the same time, no wonder you felt like this. And when you get a group of people together who are all saying, I feel exactly the same and all these things converged, you know, it's the perfect storm. No wonder I feel like this. And that kind of, um, the solidarity of that sort of, you know, we all feel the same. It can't be us completely. You know, and I I sort of think I must have worked with about 300 families over the years, um, all, you know, with postnatal depression, all referred by their GP or health visitor. We think if there's, you know, 300 families, yeah, that's not, those aren't, they're, 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 there's not, nothing wrong with these women. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, like it's not that's a coincidence that they're all going exactly. through No, exactly. This is, this is quite normal. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I think it's very true. If you can kind of tap into that and make people feel that they're not alone out there, yeah. that actually a heck of a lot of people go through this. It's just we're not talking about it. Yeah. Um, and understanding the language that, you, you know, like people 
Though I always think love language is a really interesting concept, mm. right? In, in a relationship, you've got that whole sort of like some people are, you know, some people give presents, other yeah. people want time or, time yeah. or human connection mm. or hugs or, or whatever. Um, and I think um, this is the same kind of thing. It's like finding your way of expressing what's going on for you. And like my own experience of Lucy with your support group was that I think when it was initially suggested and somebody said art therapy, Lucy was like, art therapy? Like, I'm not going to do that. It sounds mad. Like, it sounds like madness. Um, but that's just because of preconceived. Like, it's like, it, I don't, can't make sense of it. I don't really know what happens there. And it feels a bit frightening because it's unknown, I suppose. But I'll never forget the first day she came home and having been, and the light in her eyes was kind of like, I... Like it was amazing. I was able to kind of express what it feels like because I used color and I used texture and I used, you know, scenes to be able to do that. And it wasn't about, nobody was asking me to tell them. It was about saying, how do you kind of express it? And and it felt like, you know, that moment when she came home was like that sense of she'd been liberated from a place of, I can't make sense of what's going on in here right now yeah. to, okay, well, we can together yeah. we can do that and actually you're totally in control of being able to do that and just because language wasn't your avenue for doing yeah. that um that kind of unlocked that door as such yeah. and i think finding that for whoever is going through those kind of difficulties is i suppose it's why everybody has you have different motivators don't you and you have you respond to different things and i think that's important well, for not to sort of close off if you try one route another route yeah. might not be right for you and I think that's one of the things I really like about working creatively, because if anyone said to me, I mean, I, I trained in arts psychotherapy, so I trained in drama therapy. Yeah. and But I don't use any drama in my work. Yeah. I am also not an artist, so I can't do visual art at all. I can't draw or anything. But I am more likely to think in images, pictures, metaphors that kind of thing and that's really what the arts therapies are about it's about yeah it's about sort of visualizing imagining colors and and feelings and whatever so that you don't have to put the words to it yeah and i think one of the things i like about um particularly with um postnatal work is mothers can feel very very out of control Mm. they feel that something has happened in their lives they've got this baby and the baby is calling the shots Mm. and there's nothing they can do to control their lives anymore you know any any sort of structure that they had in place out the window the minute you have a baby yeah. it's sort of you're you're totally on the baby's timetable yeah and so when you feel very very out of control and particularly if you've had a very out of control birth experience to be able to put something down in front of you that's outside your body that you can manipulate on a page or you can create something and look at it gives you a bit more sense of control because you're manipulating it in front of you. You're creating something. So what Lucy did was put something down outside of her and then look at it and go, well, actually, that's not right. I'll put it there. And that's not right. I'll put it there. And she's in control of it. And it helps you think outside the box because it's not about, I think, particularly with that linear journey that we go on with pregnancy, then birth, then that postnatal period it's a very linear structure Mm. and if you look in any of your books it tells you week by week exactly what's going to happen yeah and so when we tell people our story about what happened we tend to follow that week by week structure you know and if somebody tells you about their birth they'll say oh well at this time you know this (laughs) happened then at this time this happened and it's very linear 
But our brains don't hold it in that way. What I'm interested in is what impact did it have on you? Yeah. What color is in your mind? What image do you have in your in your thoughts? You know, what pictures are coming to you? What words are just floating around in there? In other words, it's not that neat linear structure. Yeah. It's what was the impact and what are you holding on to? Um, what was it that was quite traumatic yeah. that can't be expressed through a s- story or a narrative, but yeah. is just in there somewhere in some form? Yeah. And that's kind of the approach I take in the groups is just finding, you know, the, the big questions. Well, how did you feel and what was the impact it had on you? Yeah. Not what actually happened. Yeah. Because you know, the actual what actually happened is less relevant yeah. than what impact that can be written down right like what actually happened can be yeah. it's, it's kind of what it meant to you and yes kind of... what it meant to you what what stayed with you yeah um i mean i i always remember after my first birth um when i was chatting to people about it i'd seen quite you know breezy and chatty about oh this happened the birth and blah 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 yeah but i kept referring to the midwife instead of the midwife wow <laughs> and i just kept doing it every time i said the word midwife i said midwife yeah and I used to sort of do a double take and think, hang on a minute, that tells me a heck of a lot about the way. <laughs> something subliminal going on yeah, here. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I think this may have, you know, this <laughs> may be the something. way I'm seeing this woman, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and it's things like that that you don't, you know, the classic Freudian slip. Yeah. And, uh, but that's sort of, I think when you're doing something creative, you find an object or a, a picture or an image or a word or something that says so much more. Yeah than a sentence could or a you know or a phrase or or just a straightforward narrative yeah um it feels less threatening as well yeah. i think to yeah. kind of be able to kind of if it's in your brain then how many times have you sort of oh. uh, you find those you know when something's going on for you and you're trying to articulate it to somebody else and because it's complex in its yeah. creation and in its presence um you start saying it and then it almost creates frustration in itself because you can't quite get out what you're trying to yeah. say. And then it creates this sort of like mind fog of mm. like, I think I know what I want to say. Actually, I don't know what I want to say. I know what I feel. And mm. I do, like it's trying to translate that into language. Yeah. But doing it that way just gives you another means of doing it, doesn't mm. it? And and actually, I mean, like, as I say, having gone through it, not personally, but as in witnessed it, it was incredible for like in terms of the way it changed one thing that you um you alluded to earlier but you said about earlier in the groups was the fact that it's sort of a a group of people that are all kind of experiencing the same thing and what i find amazing now is that some of lucy's closest friendships have come out of that group and that's largely because yeah you know you have shared experience and shared experience is such a powerful thing to be able to say you know me on a level that lots of people don't and you know we can all be surface for people everyone's Mm. capable of small talk and Mm. you know being acquainted with someone but actually to share your deepest darkest feelings and for somebody to understand that what you've been through in that kind of Mm. situation i guess it bonds you in the same way as you know soldiers who go go to war and stuff they kind of come back i know that's that sounds like a a really dramatic uh, analogy but it is the same like you go through you know ptsd is a massive well, part of birth we often and... use that as a as an example in in the group um because i think i think the other thing is as you say sharing it with other people who aren't going to be frightened by your experience as well yeah because when the mums talk together they're not judging and um questioning each other they're yeah. simply listening and sharing stories together um 
And I always think that, you know, I would say in the group, you know, support each other during the week between the sessions. Yeah. Because you can contact each other and go, I'm having a really rubbish day. I'm in bits. I can't do anything. Blah, blah, blah. And the rest of the group aren't going to panic. Yeah. They're not going to be thinking, oh, my goodness, she's fallen apart. Oh, it's dreadful. Whatever. Yeah. They know that you're just being honest and you're saying how it is. And yeah. so people aren't frightened of each other's feelings. Partly because they've felt it themselves they've probably felt it a themselves few days and, before. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and, and we know that, you know, if you, if you talk about it and you say it and you can share it with someone, it's less likely to do you damage. You, yeah. know, you can actually share it with somebody who can hear it and, and, and hold that for you and, and it's okay. Yeah, and then yeah. knowing that, you know, the other person doesn't think you're at death's door or anything like that yeah. is quite encouraging. It's like, well, this person understands me and it's okay. Yeah. Um, so it's quite it's it's quite interesting, but but as you say that um, alluding to the the war thing, you know, people coming back, war veterans coming back, we often um, in the group brainstorm on birth and what it was like to go through childbirth. Yeah, and some of the words that the mums come up with would sound more like people who've just been through, you know, the Vietnam War or something. <laughs> Because that's the impact it had on them. Now, they feel stupid saying it because they say, well, what I did was gave birth and I have a beautiful, healthy baby. Yeah. Therefore, I should be sitting on a rainbow. Yeah. But actually, I'm feeling like I've just been in some horrendous um, battle and failed you yeah. know, because I've come out traumatized and, and I've got PTSD and all that. And so it, it's quite interesting that you use that as a analogy yeah. because sometimes when we call it what it really felt like yeah it, it then ceases to have a hold on and us. it also gives you the capacity to kind of deal with it right yeah. in a way once you yeah. can have the courage to identify it then yeah. you're able to i've worked with dads certainly in the last couple of years who've one of which i think of particularly who you know eventually recognized that he had ptsd as a mm. result of a really complicated birth and you know the, the impact that had on him was horrendous you know like for the first three years of his son's life he didn't even realize he had it and then yeah. he found therapy i think he ended up with using like emdr therapy mm-hmm. um but and that worked for him and it mm-hmm. was really liberating to see once he found a place where he could say it's ptsd mm. and somebody outside of his mind and outside of his close network said to him it's perfectly normal you should have felt that yeah. And as far as what you've been through is a trauma and yeah. we don't call it post-traumatic stress disorder just because it's, if it was just related to war, it would be called post-war stress disorder, presumably. Yeah. It's not. It's uh, any form of trauma can kind of, um, can raise those kind of emotions and actually finding that solution. It was beautiful. It was horrendous to watch him going through the first stages. But once you saw him change it was genuinely like it was like the closest thing I've ever come to seeing like a butterfly kind mm. of effect in as far as watching him grow and come out of himself and find himself again and be able to kind of park it and be able to say, Yes, that happened, but I'm okay with it. And yeah. it's it's it happened to me, it happened in my mm. life, but it isn't gonna define my future yeah. kind of thing. And as you say about the hold it has on you. Yeah. You can't you can't change what happened, yeah. but you certainly can change the angle that you look at it. Yeah. And reframe it. Yeah. And and step back from it. And then yeah, and, and sort of file it in a different place. File it and be comfortable yeah. with it, I suppose. Yeah. And live with it. Because you're not gonna change it. it. No. It's you know, what happened happened. It's history, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Do you fit in the the twenty or so years that you've been doing that, which I and I think is amazing um has it do you think it's changed much or do you think the the experiences of women that you've come across do you think they have always shared 
they've obviously probably shared similar things but did as it as it adapted has it changed in terms of their experiences or do you think over that period um it's a tricky one i think um the the stuff that i'm hearing hasn't changed you know the issues are still the same yeah there's a lot of birth trauma um and some of it preventable yeah uh, a lot of it preventable but i think um you know it's quite openly acknowledge that the nhs is is broken yeah. <laughs> um, um as you know staff are under ridiculous pressure um understaffed working ridiculously long hours yeah. and therefore at times the care isn't what you'd want it to be yeah and then you know when when you give birth you're not you're conscious the whole way through so women are noticing all of this yeah. you know that's the one thing about childbirth you're not anesthetized and and then wake up afterwards and and job done yeah. you know women are experiencing every moment of what's going on yeah when they're going you know from the minute they go into the hospital and i think that fear isn't just the fear of giving birth i think it's the fear of am i being looked after adequately in this hospital setting yeah um, i know a lot of women have got a lot of anxiety once they're in the hospital that they they might be left in a room for long periods of time or left on a ward for long periods of time without yeah. any checks or without anyone popping in and that's simply because there aren't enough resources to be doing that yeah we don't have one-to-one um, midwife care yeah you know, we'd love to have that but but we don't you, you might see various midwives um you know you whoever's on call at that moment yeah and uh and I think there are things that those things haven't changed in the 20 years. You know, we keep the the hospital is fantastic. You know, the um, the maternity services at the IUH are, are great. You know, yeah. they're some of the, the best around. And and yet even there, they will say, you know, we can't give everything that we want to give because yeah. we're just um, under resourced for it all. So I think I think it it is a, a system problem. Yeah. Um, but it's having an impact on the mental health of the mothers who go through it all yeah um so there's not a lot of change i hate to say i'd love to say oh it's so much better <laughs> um I'd, yeah i think there are there are a lot more there's a lot more support now yeah. um than there was there's more um there's a perinatal emotional well-being partnership that's yeah. come about in the last two three years um and there are lots of groups and you know one-to-one care and stuff like that for postnatal yeah. um, care so there's a lot more available but you kind of want to prevent it before it happens. Yeah, it's yeah. all very well putting the resources in afterwards. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, I don't think we're there yet. No, and I, I wonder if we'll ever get there. And as yeah. far as like, it is a traumatic experience, birth for full stop. I don't think, you know, it's never going to be rosy, is it? And mm-hmm. I, in both of us, both our children, I am constantly amazed at how much staff at the, the hospital were able to achieve and the level of care we got considering knowing how much pressure they're under and knowing how much um time they don't have almost to mm. be able to do what they'd like to do um and i think it's i suppose that as you as you allude to really the fact that if you're able to prepare differently for that and manage your expectations the reality is if you're under resourced in any situation there are going to be someone's going to the ball will get dropped at mm. points mm. i suppose going into a birth situation our hope and where anxiety stems from presumably is the fact that where will that ball get dropped for me and you know and and the, the reality of it is it's such a complex situation as mm. well that actually there's every possibility that 
you should never expect a hundred percent, right? Because yeah. that's that's a really it's a lot of judgment calls involved. There's a lot of yeah. kind of, you know, could be this, could be that, should we be now, should we not be now? And and unfortunately we're only gonna see those things after the event a lot of the mm. time, aren't we? But if we're prepared, as you say, to be able to, to sort of say, Okay, well these are the things that we might come up against. Let's not be afraid of them like going into it. Let's make sure that we know that they're a reality, that there's a solution to if they do happen. That feels more frightening in some ways. And I think with NCT, that was always something for me that we had those conversations with our teacher actually to say, do we talk about sort of mental health or... And they did a little bit. But for me, like, especially after having a traumatic birth the first time, I would have preferred more, I think. That's what I would have liked. And... I get that that's not necessarily their role to fulfil that if that's not their, um, you know, it might it, that's not their goal with it. And I, I completely appreciate the positivity and the benefits that positivity can bring to a birth experience. I think um, what I find, I think I'd have just a bit like when you said you went, you know, went to the bookshops looking for what it feels mm. like to be pregnant. It's like if I'm interested in seeking that information out or if I'm presented with that information in a way beforehand that doesn't feel threatening, it doesn't, mm. it's not to suggest it's done calmly and considered yeah. and it's delivered in a way where you're able to sort of take that information and process it and say, that's the reality of what we might mm. be presented with. In a best case scenario, we might not have any of that and let's yeah. hope that's what it is. If it is, we're best placed to kind of deal with it and we know where we're going to go or what's what's going to come up. And I don't mean kind of planning for every eventuality because you'd never achieve that, you know. But just to sort of think, okay, what does my support network look like? And if I did feel a bit weird afterwards or it felt a bit uncomfortable or I wasn't really psychologically felt a bit unusual, who would I talk to? And which of my support network would I talk to? And am I comfortable with my GP? Um, is my midwife, does she feel like the right kind of person? Could I have that conversation before we have the baby to say, where am I best to go with that kind mm. of information, you know? It's sort of, preparation is kind of everything, right, in many yeah. ways. And I don't think you'll ever stop it, but you'll never kind of, you'll never prevent these things from happening because yeah. it's a natural event, isn't it? Mm. But um, Well, it's kind of marrying up those expectations with the reality mm. of what it's going to be. And... And as you say, accepting that it's not all going to go perfectly. Yeah. And you just have to go with what's happening. I think one of the one of the dangers is when you feel out of control, yeah. you try and manage more, manage yeah. the situation. And I think a lot of um mums and dads go in or, you know, they go into the hospital, they go into um having a baby, and because it feels out of control and sort of unheld together if there's such a word um they try and manage it all themselves so they put in controls and um try and do things so that they feel they've got their structure back or they feel that they're taking care of the situation yeah because i don't think the wider system has held them yeah um effectively yeah um i mean i remember after i had um I had my first two children and then it was my third child, but my husband's first child, my second husband's first child. Yeah. And 
he want you know his first experience he wanted it to be perfect he wanted it to be you know very yeah. excited and everything whereas for me I was thinking oh my god this is my third one this is horrendous <laughs> um and I remember after the birth um you know we had a baby who obviously wasn't sleeping keeping us up in the night yeah would you know cry a lot all that kind of all the problems that you normally have with a newborn baby yeah and for me, it was my third one. So I was thinking, okay, I know how to do this. Um, I know this doesn't last forever. Yeah. I know this is just the early weeks and I've got to get used to it. And yeah. I know that our family life is going up in the air for the next for few months. For a period months. of time, Exactly. Yeah. And you just go with it and you survive. Yeah. It's survival. You know, <laughs> you just got to get through. And if you can smile on the way, great. And I remember he had so such high expectations because this was his very longed for son. Yeah. And it was very exciting. Uh, and I remember at about sort of six weeks after having our son, he just looked downright miserable. Yeah. And he just looked, he looked burnt out, he looked exhausted, and he looked like somebody had sort of punched him in the gut. And yeah. I remember saying to him, you know, are you all right with all this? Yeah. And and he said, well, it's just, it's just not what I expected it to be. It's yeah. just not where I thought we'd be. You know, I barely, we barely have a conversation. We don't yeah. have any time. We're not really doing anything together and going out and things. And he said, I thought we'd be having a great time with our new baby. Yeah. And it was quite funny. I, because obviously I do the work that I do and I have my um, evaluation sheets and I have the Edinburgh postnatal score and stuff like that, yeah. that I do as part of my evaluation of the women. I said to my husband, well, why don't you just fill in this questionnaire for me? <laughs> it's meant for mums. It's yeah. meant for the mums and it's an evaluation of postnatal depression. But why don't you fill in this questionnaire? Let's see how you do. Yeah, yeah. And he scored as postnatally depressed. Wow. And I thought it was really interesting because I, well, I was fascinated by the fact that he, yeah, yeah. <laughs> my husband's got depression. But it was very, um, what he read in those questions was very relatable. Things yeah. like, you know, it was basically about expectations and hoping that things would be better yeah. and finding that this isn't what he thought it was going to be. Yeah. Um, we did talk about it and I said, so, you know, it will get better. It will get easier. This is totally normal. Yeah. Um, you are kind of completely out of control. And as a a bloke in a very successful job who runs his own business or that you're used to being in control you're used to fixing things when they don't go right yeah and this is something you can't fix you just have to hold tight and go with it yeah um and therefore that brings out sort of you know all sorts of feelings in anyone of inadequacy and failure and and all that kind of thing and then disappointment and oh why did we do this and all those things that then tumble on afterwards but i just thought it was really interesting that you know my husband scored the same as perhaps I would have done after my first baby. Yeah. And most of the women in my group would have done. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And after, you know, a matter of months or whatever, things got a lot better okay. and it was fine. Yeah. But it just goes to show that these are very normal feelings that anyone can have yeah. when you're thrown into something that you have no map for. Um, nobody is telling you kind of what to expect or how to go about it. Yeah. And the expectation that it's going to be wonderful is huge. Yeah. Um, the sort of the divide between the two is is ridiculous, yeah, right? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, like one in ten the statistics call one in ten dads as suffering with postnatal depression. Yeah. Right? I, from my experience, it feels like that number yeah is misrepresentative, to be honest. And that's not to suggest that everybody gets postnatal depression. It's not not suggesting they do by any stretch of the imagination. But what we're caught in, especially with there's been a lot of progress for mums because naturally um, maternity care, mm. where they're carrying a baby, there's, you know, you're looking after mum and baby. It's a very direct relationship. Yeah. And then I guess in the last sort of 10, 15 years, dads have 
become more paternal and mm. they're choosing to change their life habits they're spending more time mm. with their kids they want to be more present in their mm. lives and you know for some people they've been fortunate enough to have that throughout their lives but i think it's definitely a societal change that dads had read an article in the guardian yesterday talking about kind of how fatherhood's changed and really interesting um but and that's it but i suppose for men it's kind of like or, or partners generally i suppose even if even if you're in a same-sex relationship and you haven't carried the baby it's it's mm. kind of you're you're not sidelined but you you're kind of you're secondary in some respects mm. and and yet you're still exposed to all the same things mm. and it's i think it's great that you know the world is changing and what i'm hopeful for is that for my kids when they grow up will be so much further down the line. So when Wilbur becomes a dad, mm. he'll have had another 20 years or whatever of kind of people working out that, yeah. okay, so dads get it too and yeah. mums get it. And there's so many different angles to it. And so it's okay. We've got a process for that. It's all managed. We check in with you and we check in with mum and we check in with, we make sure you've got a support network. Yeah. All this good work that we're all trying to do around the subject informs a better parenting relationship for our kids and also informs for our grandkids leaves them in a better position because they'll be hopefully mm. much more mentally fit and much more mm. capable and they'll be they'll have role models that are able to kind of that they're not seeing panicking if you know what I mean and I yeah. suppose you know generationally you can kind of watch that where it was that that stiff upper lip mentality of 30 40 mm. years ago is gradually kind of diminishing and people are saying let's just not do that anymore let's just yeah. be honest you know um but it is interesting in, in men and i think for the work that i did with dads it was very much like you've got the whole stumbling block of getting people to admit it in the first place there's the the whole pride component of it but there's also the sense of uh their role in becoming a parent or having a child is mm. secondary to mum because that's how yeah. society sees it. Yeah. So most guys that I've ever met, it's not uncommon for me to be having a conversation where they say, well, I don't feel like I can say anything about how I'm feeling yeah. because it's she's just her. been through yeah, all that. She's, I've just seen her go through and it. Goodness yeah. me, would I look like some sort of yeah. real nasty person to yeah. be saying I'm... Whereas actually, you know, the way I see it is that we should be building better families yeah. right and that involves everybody being at their best that doesn't involve kind of sorting mum out and making sure mm. she's okay while dad sort of uh, deteriorates mm. and equally the other way around i've seen many relationships where mum's absolutely fine and dad's, and dad's yeah kind of traumatized like, i can't cope with this yeah. you know like they both nearly died or whatever yeah. and actually mum's just got a different mindset and she's mm. kind of she's coping and and he's not you know well you're putting together two people for whom this might be the first time they've ever done this, mm. they are totally inexperienced and they're just winging it. They, they, they don't know how to do yeah. it, you know, because this is your first experience. Yeah. You throw in a level of trauma or in a traumatic event and then you throw them together and say, right, support each other. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of go, how can they support each other yeah. when they're both sort of bunny and headlights after what's just happened? Yeah. Um, because as you say, we haven't got that wider community. You know, our culture... Is such that you go off into a small private space, give birth quietly, come back, lock the door, shut the door, and you're you're on your own in your house. Yeah, yeah. You know, if we were in a different kind of culture, you'd have the extended family around you. There'd be other people involved in the whole process. Yeah, and there'd be 
people supporting the mum and dad with yeah. this new baby. But we're very private yeah. um, in the way we do it. You literally just go off to hospital, come back, um, or you give birth at home, you know, and then you lock the front door and that's it. And people say, don't go and visit them yet. Give them some space. Yeah. But actually... Giving people space can sometimes mean they feel completely dropped. Well, you need to ask, um, right? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the that is often the thing. Is um, uh, you, I did another on one of our other podcasts. We talk about um, a grief, and and it's very mm. much one of the themes that came out of that was very much around. Um, don't tell me what I need, ask me what mm. I need, and then I can give that to mm. you as support. But there, there's this sort of overwhelming. Uh, desire to kind of be like okay well they've been through that they must need that mm. whereas for some people it's absolutely right you know the the mother earth type people that I've that we've met on our journey in parenthood who are like I don't want to see anyone for three weeks and I'm not going to get mm. out of bed for three weeks while I'm just breastfeeding my baby and just being together and I think in many ways that's beautiful that wouldn't have been right for my family yeah but and it's exactly the same way. It's like it's respecting what people are comfortable with mm. and actually nurturing the best outcome for them based on their wants and needs. And actually the best thing we can do, we come right back to the start with all this, is being honest about what we want and need and what we're going through. And the, the honesty gives us the opportunity to kind of provide an environment that is, is most conducive to helping us through it, right? Mm. It's... um. So to just sort of, I guess it links on quite nicely to the sort of um, behavioural work that you do in schools and, and the um, working with children and that kind of thing. Yeah. How did that come about for you? What was that? How did that sort of develop? So I was doing the work with mums and babies, but I also worked just privately with children. Yeah. Um, I'd always worked with children even before. Um, I'd a lot of um, worked for the youth service for a while. So I'd always worked with young people Yeah. Um, before I got pregnant and then went into the postnatal work. Um, and then I started working in a primary school and uh, there was quite a lot of vulnerable families there. Um, and I was working with children on the child protection register and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and children who were possibly being taken into care and, and working with those children. And I think what came out of that was quite often the child is identified as the one needing therapy because of their behavior. So yeah. then I'd be called in and, you know, work with this child, you know, fix this child, please. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah uh, impossible, couldn't do that. Um, and, and actually, when a child is behaving in a certain way, that's a form of communication. They yeah. are communicating what's going on in their life through their behavior. So actually, tuning in and listening to what this child is saying is is going on in their lives through their behavior not through their actual words but through their actions yeah you then start to see well this is part of a bigger picture this is a family issue yeah um it's just that the child is the one identified as as vocalizing it or or showing it you know by acting out yeah and so from that i started to work with the parents as well and sometimes i'd work um say mother and child or mother father and child yeah and then from that came just working with the mothers yeah. um, or the fathers or both. Um, because quite often, if you can work out what's going on for the parent, the child somehow just falls into place. Yeah. And and I think the other thing I, I found was if the child is has got some very tricky behavior, um, the parents probably aren't enjoying their parenting. Yeah. You know, you don't enjoy living with a child who's an 
absolute nightmare to live yeah. with you know the school might be identifying this child as really tricky and difficult and 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 you know behavior that's out of control but you can guarantee the parents having that at home yeah, yeah. and it makes every day hell for the parent yeah and then you sort of go well the parent's not enjoying this so maybe the parent needs some support and some help and i think so much of it is generational because if you can get it right for the parent like i say the child tends to fit in to place yeah um, but the parent probably needs some work on how they were parented. Yeah. Because we, our own parents give us the blueprint for parenting. You yeah. Know, how we were parented, those early relationships that we had with our mother and father or whoever was our main caregiver, that relationship and the quality of that relationship is our blueprint for how we tackle other relationships in our lives. Yeah. And then, of course, when you have a baby and all that, it, it then feeds on through to your children. Yeah. So looking at sort of what the triggers were for the child and for the parent and starting to unravel that and look at that seemed to work. Yeah. Yeah. So it sort of naturally evolves. So in some ways the postnatal feeds into the work with children, which feeds into the work with parents. And I think that that thread runs through all of it, right? Because the inner child in all of us is such a strong fight or flight kind of Mm. like, I don't know whether you call it, the monkey brain or whatever, you know, mm. it's, the, it's the part of your brain yeah. that kind of like does what it needs for you to survive and, and cope. And mm. I guess when we're all kids, I don't, I don't think there is no such thing as a perfect parent, is there? So we've, we've no, all been good enough through. Parent. Yeah, that's, that's all we it. need to yeah, be, yeah. good enough parent. Best that you can be. And I think being able to admit to your sort of mistakes is, is a much more recent, um, not to say it didn't exist before, but it certainly wasn't a common thing mm. in, even for my parents' generation of like, you know, saying, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. When you're a five-year-old talking to a five-year-old, it's like, you know, that that wasn't the done thing. Certainly for my grandparents, it was like a, a totally different thing, right? Mm. But actually, you, you've kind of just hit the nail on the head, I think, from, for me there, at least anyway. It's like that you, you're kind of unraveling a puzzle that's sort of, ages old really yeah kind yeah of like and 80, it, it, it's your parents old, generation right? it's before them it's exactly what, you know, yeah you, you've got there are going to be things that have impacted on you yeah that you've unconsciously absorbed that you are bringing into your current relationships yeah and that will then impact on your own children and their children you know and so it's it's just identifying those things um mm. and making sense of a lot of it so that you can then choose whether you behave in certain ways yeah. rather than being a sort of impulse to behave in certain ways yeah and having the sort of um i suppose what we have and i'm which i'm grateful for in a lot of ways is that the the world that we live in the society we live in today is at least encouraging of the fact that it that the vulnerability and honesty is becoming an embedded part of our culture in mm. a way that you're able to have those conversations and we are now a generation that is able to choose what our future looks like for our kids. Whereas yeah. for our previous generations and parents and grandparents, it was just you do what you're told and this yeah. is the model. Yeah. And so you're then left with kind of decades mm. of um, bad habits, so to speak, mm. or things that are you know, not necessarily healthy, but you just learn to live with them, you know? Yeah. And so I think what I... I guess admire about this whole shift is that it takes a lot of courage in everyone's part to kind of stand up and say, okay, I recognize that as a kid, that wasn't the best outcome for me. And that doesn't mean to say I could just behave exactly the same way as my parents did, or I could choose the good bits and the bad bits. Mm. 
and recognizing that the they're not bad necessarily i mean they are for some people i'm sure but like the the bits that aren't so ideal for for my kids mm. i can choose to turn that switch flick that switch and say i've got some work to do in that and i think i'm going to change that so that when they become parents we're cutting the mm. we're cutting the roots effectively to the the sort of bad habits and i think you know as much as all this is certainly from work i've done on myself it's like it's really hard work isn't it you mm. know when you're trying to kind of process things that you know that at 7 years old that you went through kind of thing and you think oh, I'd done a really good job of boxing this up and parking it in a corner that I never have to look at. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm seeing a counsellor who's yeah. telling me that actually yeah. we need it all to up open again. that all up and kind of <laughs> reorder it, put some away, give yeah. some away, let it go. Um, that's really hard work. Yeah. And But once you've been through that and you're able to kind of see the, the positive outcomes from that, it becomes almost addictive. And it's like, a, in a good way, it's like a... We stay we stay physically fit by going to the gym or going yeah. for a walk or exercising in many other ways. Why would we not kind of do that for our brain kind yeah. of thing? You know, we just sort of we're historically trained that you know there's no need to do that mm. kind of work. But actually, if well, we do, the outcomes can be so much better. And it's doing it without judgment. You know, it's yeah. like looking at those childhood things and stuff and not looking for blame or or vengeance or judgment yeah. or anything like that. But just saying, right, I'm going to look at this. And I'm going to see whether the narrative that I've been telling myself all my life yeah. is genuine and true or whether actually it just fitted what my family at the time wanted it to be or yeah. what, or how I was to behave or whatever. And finding out what it means for you and what your truth is and what you the way you see it. Yeah. But doing that without that judgment and blame of anybody else, because the past is the past and just going, right, I'm I'm looking through that box for the seven year old. You yeah. know, I'm seeing now what I think was was happening and what was going on. Yeah. But I'm not holding on to that bitterness and anger and resentment. I'm just thinking, well, that's how it was. Yeah. I'm now going to rewrite that for myself and say, well, this is how it actually was. Yeah. And move on from it. And as an adult, you do have that choice, don't you? Yeah. Like as an adult, you do. Have, we all have that capacity. We mm. all have the the chance to do that um we don't i don't think we're born with the skills to do that and as far as because our brain is quite primitive in terms of you know it wants to default back to so even if it's a even if it's an uncomfortable cycle there's something about being in control of a a, a particular set of circumstances so we have an argument the argument goes on for a bit i get my point across you get my mm. point across we say sorry at the end of it we say we love each other and we move on now there are other ways to do that but actually if that's all you've known growing up then that's kind of it feels okay because it's like what well, i know what this stage is i know what the next stage is and i know that in about an hour's time we'll be over this or depending on your circumstance a day or two is yeah. time or whatever yeah. you know but it's like you know better the devil you know almost of that sense of like um this feels comfortable with me like i i kind of i can cope with this because i know the outcome is going to and it comes back to control again right yeah. like knowing what it is and when you sort of start doing that therapeutic work of like i'd like to change this behavior you have to kind of completely undo all your processes almost mm. and say as hard as it is for me to want to do this right now, I just want to change. I, I just don't want to do that anymore. So resist the temptation to kind of just react or whatever. And that's, in my experience at least, it's been one of the hardest things I've found is like, 
okay, this is for the this will become normality at some point. This will become mm. my new normal. It will take me quite a long time to get to that new normal, and that's a lot of emotional energy. But it's worth doing in terms of, uh, and the beneficiaries of that are our kids. And mm. as you say, like, and I think with born human, it's the, that's the whole concept of it is about getting ahead. We've talked, you know, it's probably a nice point for us to sort of reach this conclusion. Really, is that all of it is about kind of being better prepared or kind of looking at the root cause of something rather than trying to put a band-aid on something that mm. you know isn't suitable for a band-aid you know mm. it needs kind of like you need to kind of well there's something you can right do back. about it yeah. yeah you don't have to sit with it you yeah. can do something about it yeah, yeah and kind of live with the the wound yeah. or whatever you can kind of take it back and make sure it never comes back yeah. again at some point yeah. and that sounds quite flippant in the way i say i oh, just sort of sort it out and make sure it never comes back it is hard work but it's worth it right and yeah, actually definitely. it benefits yeah. for our kids but well it's been lovely to chat to you thank you so much for coming on and it's uh, a pleasure to have you on board at born human more than anything um and yeah so i will share any links that we've got to the work that you do and those kind of things but um until next time i'll leave you to it and we'll um, we'll speak to you soon thank you very much thank you it that's it for the end of episode 15 and not least that the end of season one of the born human podcast a massive thank you to Dominic for joining us today she is an amazing woman who has helped so many people over the last 20 years and having felt the benefits of that power and that input that she has to people's lives i just think it's phenomenal and i can only hope that this podcast and the work that i'm doing with born human is anywhere near as productive and constructive as the things that she's achieved in the last 20 years. A massive thank you to everyone who's been part of this journey and their honesty and their truth that they've shared with us. And for those of you that have joined us to listen, amazing to have you all there with your support and your open ears to be able to learn from these experiences and take something away from them. We obviously appreciate all the effort that you put into sharing, communicating and listening and commenting, all that kind of stuff. So please continue to do that because without that, we can't make this the thing that we'd love it to be. And so we're now taking a break until season two, but we've got loads of great people lined up to talk to us for a second season, which will be out later in the year. We can't wait to share that with you. In the meantime, a massive thank you to all of you for joining us. To all our guests, a huge thank you for everything they've shared. And we will see you later in the year for season two. Until then, take care, stay safe.